This is Export Like a Boss, the podcast for those on the front lines of international business and trade. Succeed in business on a global scale. The planet is your market. Here's your host, Alberto Rodriguez Baez. Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome to a new episode of Export Like a Boss. Cross-border e-commerce or conducting international sales using the internet is growing as a channel for selling to buyers abroad. E-commerce is quickly becoming a critical tool for exporters that want to engage not only on business-to-consumer sales, but also on business-to-business and business-to-government sales. E-commerce is one of the hottest topics in international trade, and today, We have an expert that will provide best practices and tips to export like a boss using e-commerce. Our guest today is Joshua Halpern, director of the e-commerce innovation lab at the U.S. Department of Commerce, which is part of the International Trade Administration. We have included in this episode's notes links to the e-commerce innovation labs website and the other resources and services mentioned in the interview. You can find the episode's notes on our website, exportlikeaboss.com. Finally, please remember to subscribe today on iTunes and rate our show. We are sure you'll enjoy this interview. So, without further ado, here is Joshua Halpern, director of the e-commerce innovation lab. Enjoy the show! Josh, hello, how are you doing? Good, Alberto. How are things in Texas? Great, thank you very much. Josh, let's dive right into the questions. And first of all, can you tell us a little bit about how do you get involved in e-commerce and digital marketing? Can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Sure, sure. I just came back from running the retail e-commerce and logistics portfolios for the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, China, uh, we initially started back in 2000 and maybe 9 or 10, focused predominantly on retail, which included a lot of franchising, a lot of uh, retail brick and mortar. And over the years, it really started to pick up in terms of e-commerce and digital uh, trade. So I was asked to kind of fill out that portfolio, build a lot of services to help connect U.S. small businesses to overseas distributors and e-commerce platforms, worked a lot with Alibaba, JD, and all the other major players and, and some of the mi- minor players as well. Then I was brought in by the current Director General of the Commercial Service and Department of Commerce to apply some of the lessons learned over in China to a broader e-commerce innovation lab here in Silicon Valley. So while I am not a political appointee and I will be alive and well following the transition, uh, I have been brought in by the uh, current politicals to set up this office. And how long have you been the director of the e-commerce innovation lab at the U.S. Department of Commerce? So I started in 2015 on December 28th, moving the family from Beijing to Silicon Valley to open the lab. Josh, in how many countries have you lived? It's a great question. I was just talking to myself the other day about what it defines countries lived in. Uh, so I guess if, if you say any place I've lived for more than six months, in a capacity I would call 
living it and calling my home. I lived in Spain for three or four years. I ran programs in Central America uh, half time, so half of every month in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Haiti, Guatemala, uh, and then in India for uh, about a year or so, uh, Taiwan for a year, and China for seven of the last 10 years. That's amazing, and we are very excited to have you today, and I'm sure that our listeners will get great information from your experience. So let's talk a little bit about the e-commerce innovation lab. When was the e-commerce innovation lab officially launched, and where can people learn more about the e-commerce innovation lab? Officially is looking to be launched in a way this coming January, February, Uh, we've been in a very long soft launch period where we're doing a lot of different initiatives, getting things going. And one of the things that I find extremely, let's say, challenging is the timeline that government can work in because of all the different protocols and issues. So I keep pumping out new content, but in terms of official launch, uh, we're, we're still looking at January, February of 2017. Having said that, you can go to export.gov slash e-commerce and you can find information around building your e-commerce export strategy. I've broken down the fundamentals of an e-commerce export strategy into nine major pillars, and you can find those there, uh, and then you dive a little bit deeper. It's not the optimal site, uh, but there's a ton of back-end tech issues that are the reason why things are laid out the way they are, but that's certainly a great resource for people just getting started. And we for sure will include the link to the e-commerce innovation lab in the episode's notes on our website. Josh, can you tell us a little bit about the e-commerce innovation lab's core mission? Sure. So the e-commerce innovation lab is an outcropping of the Department of Commerce's digital economy leadership agenda. We are charged with exponentially increasing the number of companies exporting from the U.S. via e-commerce channels. So in doing so, we focus a lot on two major areas. One is training up our trade specialists throughout the U.S. We have offices in every state in the U.S. Uh, in many states, we have multiple offices, and we focus on helping small and medium enterprises understand the e-commerce export paradigm. Uh, so I train up our staff through programs and through online content. A lot of what I spend my time on is training directly to clients through self-service online educational tools. So that is where export.gov slash e-commerce comes into play, but it also comes into play in our partnerships with private industry. So we partner with major companies as well as minor to help leverage their strategies, their tools, their resources for SMEs, whereas otherwise they may be focused more on the medium to large companies. We push them to really bring their services into either price point or accessibility for the small company and medium company. We're doing that in an interview series called Getting to Global. We've built out interviews with service providers and with retailers to understand best practices in e-commerce exporting. The gettingtoglobal.com is the platform for our strategic partners. We come together and we build content and interview series and podcasts to help companies understand how to export through e-commerce and how to sell more online overseas, if you will. Outstanding. And I'm sure that our listeners will be interested in checking out the, the websites that you have mentioned. If a listener goes to the e-commerce innovation labs website, what would they be able to find there? What kind of resources are available in the website right now? Sure. 
taking a step back in terms of what they'll find when they first land, they'll find those nine topics I was describing. Uh, that includes identify market opportunities. That includes resources from industry and from USG on how you can understand what the opportunity is for your particular products in a given market, what are the challenges, etc. Building your digital brand. What are the strategies you can use to build your brand overseas? Again, all of this is building it for the overseas market. So we talk about a little of the nuances about social media in certain countries, WeChat, Weibo versus you know, maybe a WhatsApp play in Brazil or elsewhere. Some of the issues around identifying content that resonates with the local community, etc. Then we go to choose the right channel mix. That's talking a lot about do you go with a marketplace? Do you sell direct to consumer from your U.S.-based site? Do you set up an overseas site with an overseas extension? What are the challenges in setting it up? For example, in China, you'd have to have a, a company registered in China to set up that .cn or work with a distributor that you trust, whereas in other countries, you can set up that .fr perhaps, but it certainly takes a lot of expenditure. So for a small and medium company, maybe just going through a mar marketplace is the best fit for you. And we talk a little bit about that. Then we go through optimizing your user experience. How do you basically localize and globalize your website to engage better with the overseas consumer? Is that uh, payment gateway, logistics and full landed cost calculators? Are we talking about translation services as well as you know layouts and click-throughs, which are slightly different uh, in certain markets? I'll give you an example. I built an app for one of my startups called Culture Agents for kids to engage with each other uh, overseas. And the layouts in China for the app for the kids to use it uh, we're very different from the layouts we needed for the U.S. kids. So the submit button is on the opposite side in China. And that may seem simple, but a lot of the flow with people having increasingly less patience to wade through suboptimal user experience becomes a critical element. Then we go to price your products. Price your products is really about full landed costs, understanding the duties and the tariffs uh, and the competitive landscape for pricing. Do you create a cheaper or a more expensive price for your products as a core base retail price? Do you keep it the same? But then what are the extra duties in certain countries? I'll give you an example. Brazil, you've got, I don't know, something like 19 different provinces with different tax codes. And if you don't know those and you don't understand what the end result is going to be, your end consumer will get A, frustrated, or B, just find it to be not a competitive price structure. Then we talk about protecting your brand. That's a lot of the IP protection issues. And we work a lot with the USPTO, and there's a stopfakes.com, and they have some information there, and we put a lot of that there um, and some of the challenges around that. But it also talks about protecting your brand in terms of compliance and regulatory issues. Uh, for example, if you're selling cosmetics or food supplements into a certain market, if you go to direct-to-consumer, it might actually skirt a lot of the local FDA-equivalent issues that you would have if, if you were selling direct to a distributor and a business that would be importing a large quantity of that product. So you want to understand those issues so that you don't run into issues later on that could degrade your brand, let's say. So then we go into ship your products. That's cross-border fulfillment and logistics. That's a lot about do you ship direct to consumer? Do you ship to a distributor? If you're doing a free trade zone or a bonded warehouse, what are the values to that? If you're shipping into Europe, for example, do you ship to the UK and then fulfill to the rest of Europe, which has its certain bad advantages and certain other advantages, of course, in terms of registration, etc. cetera. Uh, but now with Brexit, there are some implications there. So shipping your products that we talk about a lot. Getting paid is the next one. Getting paid is really about payment solutions. How do you integrate a fully functional payment solution that has the payment gateways that you would need for overseas buyers? For example, uh, obviously, union pay you need in there. You're going to need 
certain cash and delivery solutions. You're going to need certain uh, other more facilitated Alipay versus uh, PayPal versus uh, WeChat Pay. How do you get those things integrated into your site, and who are the players and the service providers that can do it for small and medium enterprises without a huge enterprise-level price point? Uh, and then there's VAT issues with all of that, and companies don't always know that you can actually create a tax ID number and fulfill your VAT obligations without ever setting foot or setting up a company in an overseas market uh, now with a lot of the solutions that are coming out there. Then we talk about managing after-sales services. That's warranties, returns, customer service. Obviously, if you're talking about fulfilling orders in China, you may have linguistical challenges with dealing with your customers there. So you may need to find a partner in China that can deal with that if your product has a lot of returns or is somewhat more complex. Again, with refurbishing and dealing with warranties, you're going to probably need an in-country partner unless you do what I would say 95% of our e-commerce companies do, which is either offer returns and just resend the item and don't even deal with somebody sending the product back to the U.S., don't deal with refurbishing, trashing, or liquidating. A lot of that happens because, A, the price points are low, margins are, are it doesn't make it worthwhile to send the product back, but also... You, know, you don't always trust the person that would be doing this. So if you end up finding a partner that says that we're going to liquidate your product, how do you know that that product isn't going to wind up next to your retail original products but at a cheaper price point without identifying that they're actually refurbished, etc.? So there's a lot of challenges around that, and you want to find the right partner or have the right uh, solution. So that's what you'll find. In addition to those topics, you're going to find a list of e-commerce specialists. These are people that have gone through at least a two-day training with us on how to build an e-commerce export strategy. They're trade specialists under the commercial uh, service, and you can find their email and the contact information there. Then you'll find a link to our newsletter that we publish every two months, more or less. We'll be putting out another one probably in mid-January, and that goes through some of the topics that are hot right now in the market. And then we have a link to our YouTube channel and a link to service providers and a virtual product pitch and some more information about our strategic partners. Outstanding. Josh, thank you very much for providing such an in-depth explanation. And I am so excited that you are leading this department, this initiative, because e-commerce is certainly one of the hottest topics in international trade. And we hear that very often from, from clients, from colleagues, from people in international trade. So I am so excited that we have now these resources available. Josh, if a listener is interested in receiving assistance, in receiving help, besides the information available in the e-commerce innovation labs website, who can they contact? Is there a central office they can contact or they should contact the specialists that you mentioned? Great question. And there's so many different touch points here. On the immediate, if you're located anywhere in the U.S., You can communicate with one of our trade specialists. Those are found at export.gov slash locations. And there you'll find a tab for U.S. offices and for international offices. You can also, if you want to find a trade specialist that is more focused on e-commerce, you can go to export.gov slash e-commerce and click on e-commerce specialist. And you'll find a list of people who've gone through a training with us on e-commerce export strategy. They are also trade specialists with a commercial service, but they just have a little bit more of a specialization in e-commerce. Uh, but they may not be located close to you, depending on where you are. So, Alberto, one of the services that we've launched this year that has been 
successful has been the virtual product pitch program. What I found many years ago in China was that a lot of the companies that have e-commerce appropriate product don't need to do our traditional gold key service, which is traditionally flying over to another country, bringing supplies, sitting down with companies face to face to find the right distributor, etc. Well, that's great. Not all of our companies have the budget for that, and the timelines for that are often probably a little longer than people would like. So, in an e-commerce paradigm, we set up an opportunity for small and medium companies to present their products online to overseas e-commerce-focused distributors and e-commerce platforms that have procuring entities. So, that's not necessarily Tmall because Tmall doesn't buy anything, but it might be a JD.com if they have an interest in a product or a JD Worldwide, and I can talk about that at some point. But we just ran one to Brazil for pet products. We've run another one for broad-based consumer goods into Taiwan, and now we're, we're doing a larger recruitment for companies that have e-commerce appropriate products to sell anywhere overseas, and you can identify which markets you're interested in, what product category your, your products are focused on. If you go to export.gov slash e-commerce, go to the bottom middle, you'll see virtual product pitch program. Click on that, and you'll have the contact information for the person who heads that program, Suzette Nickel, and you'll see a lot more information about that. In addition, I'd love to talk a little bit about our service providers list that we're building out, if you think that's useful. Absolutely. Okay. We have partnered with an organization called the Global Retail Insights Network. It's a very well-respected nonprofit that helps retailers expand overseas. And working with them, we've come up with a, a pretty robust vetting process and a, an online service to list out e-commerce-focused service providers so that companies understand who does what and how they're helpful uh, for building out your e-commerce strategy. What we found over the years is, you know, we, A, as federal government, we can't really recommend a particular company. And B, if we do, it's not necessarily because they're great, it's because maybe there's a paid service we have, et cetera, and so it's been a little bit of a challenge. What we've done with Grin Labs is create, uh, which is the Global Retail In Insights Network, is create a kind of co-committee between commercial service and the nonprofit, uh, nonprofit and industry to identify service providers, put them on a list. And so now if you go to export.gov slash e-commerce, at the bottom you'll see either service providers link or a tools and services link. Both of those are the same. We're just maybe adjusting them in the future. And then a link to this co-branded service providers list. If you want to join it, if you are a service provider, uh, you can actually join it. It's, I think, $300 a year to join uh, for small and medium enterprises and then $600 for a larger meeting, I think 500 employees or more. Or if you're an overseas company, you can also join, but that's about $600 as well. And that allows us to build up a site. It gives, it's a cost recovery mechanism. You can also upload a PowerPoint video if you're a service provider on that site so that people can watch a little bit of an introduction about what you do and why it's useful. It should become a very useful uh, tool in itself, but we haven't published it yet. You can start joining it as a service writer and then start viewing it hopefully in January, February. Great. I'm sure that listeners will be interested in learning more about the virtual pitch services and also the network of service providers that you mentioned. So for sure, we will include the links to those services and those areas in this episode's notes. Josh, what are some of the most common misconceptions regarding selling products abroad via e-commerce? Uh, one of the things I would say that I hear often about selling abroad with e-commerce is just the, the overwhelming amount of information that's coming at SMEs right now 
or anybody really. Uh, you know, every consultant has information about how you can sell overseas, and every uh, service provider wants to get in the face of our you know clients. And sifting through that is a real challenge. And so what ends up happening is small uh, you know, medium companies start to they kind of walk away. They kind of say, well, you know what, I don't have the bandwidth. It's really only for large companies, and I see a lot of these things with price points that are just not the right fit for us. Um, I would say the biggest misconception is that you have to be a large company with a large budget to get overseas. Now, you do have to have a commitment to go overseas if you want to do anything meaningful in an overseas market. But you do not have to now, more than ever, do not have to be a large company with a big budget to do it. Great. And what advice would you give to a company that wants to start exporting or is currently exporting via e-commerce? I would say understand the market that you're looking to go into as best as you can. There's a ton of online resources for it. And understand your own organization's appetite for doing so. And while that sounds very basic, what we find more often than not is a company says, oh, I hear everyone's making a lot of money in, you know, let's say China, Japan, Europe. You know, I want to do that too. We say, great. What do you want to sell? How do you want to sell it? And how do you want to build your brand? And they said, well, here's what we've got. Here's what we want to sell. Just, you know, we want to go make some money. It's like, great. Are you going to build a brand? Uh, no, I just want people to come to me. Well, the reality is there is so much out there now for consumers from all over the world that competing in this marketplace is requiring a lot of attention in building your brand. Does that mean you have to put a lot of budget into it? You have to put a reasonable amount of budget and, de and designate effort and time into it. But... It's not about throwing money into pay-per-click. I've seen a lot of companies do very creative things with low budgets to build their brand overseas. I'll give you a couple of examples. Cosmetics company comes to me and says, hey, I want to build my digital brand in China. Great. Join the group. Everyone wants to do that. Uh, it's great because, you know, right now you don't have to do CFDA approval, so the local FDA equivalent approval, if you're selling direct to consumer into China, that may change, but for now... Uh, if it's for individual use, you don't have to do that. So that's cool. And that's what's starting this huge trend, or it started it probably about a year or two ago. But that also means there's a ton of noise in this market. But I said to the company, what do you have that resonates with clients beyond the usual, hey, buy my product, it's great? Said, well, we have about a year's worth of one video a day of how-to videos on how to apply makeup to fulfill whatever your, your aesthetic desires are, right? And there's no language, so there's no translation requirement, no budget into that. Um, so great, let's build a WeChat account, let's build a, a, a following on WeChat and elsewhere uh, with people who care about your content and care about learning about these things. Build that following and then you can start selling into it. It may be it's organic, it may be a little slower, but if you're not willing to spend the money to build that brand, this is a great way in and it's a creative way that I think in the long term will have a much stronger following moving forward. Another company has come to me, says, hey, you know, I have rock climbing gear. I make this really unique kind of claw that kind of is really appropriate for extreme rock climbers. Great. Pretty niche, but of course, a lot of our companies, small and medium companies are niche uh, and they do some really great work. What are you doing overseas? Well, we haven't really expanded overseas, but we have had some interest from this rock climbing association in France, and they really want to profile what we're doing. It's a great. What are the associations around the world that are doing a similar products that have key opinion leaders? Get in bed with them, understand what they want, give them a lot of maybe free content initially, get the people on board, and start selling or promoting your products through there. Join an event overseas, 
find a way to, to join. If you can't join a trade show or if there's a big rock climbing event going on, get involved. But understand the associations that drive the key opinion leaders, the communities online. And that's where it takes uh, sometimes somebody in the local market to really understand where the people are talking about the product that you care about. If it's pet products, where's the you know pet product uh, community of pet product moms and dads that want to talk about you know their favorite uh, Shih Tzu and what they're you know what they're doing? Let's get engaged with those. But you may need to find somebody to do that for you or with you. And maybe it's uh, somebody in the local community college that can help you in the U.S. that can start that out. Uh, but you're going to want to start focusing on those areas. Some pretty tools that you should really look at. When I talk to companies about understanding their, their brand and where they are overseas, I tell them to go to Google Market Finder. You can do that by just searching on Google uh, for Google Market Finder or Google Trends, which is even a more, I think, appropriate tool. Both of those are free tools. You can type in the product category. You can type in the name of the company um, if you want to be that granular. Uh, but you can go and search for where are people, what are people looking for in a given market. You can say, hey, I want to understand in Germany the number of people searching for vegan cosmetics. Okay, go into Google Trends, go into Google Market Finder, type that in, and you'll see that, and you'll see other markets that you, that you wouldn't have maybe otherwise thought of and, and start looking at that. So obviously, every company is different, and the examples I give you may not actually work for your company. But one of the fundamentals you're, you're, you've got to think about here is what are the things that you have that are core to your brand that you may take for granted? Uh, for example, the fact that they're made in the U.S. or the fact that you have people in Missouri with three generations of furniture building skills that are making your product. That resonates a lot with an overseas consumer. So the more you can articulate the unique process, for example, behind it, the authenticity, the more that you will resonate with the overseas consumers. So the probably I would say authenticity is the currency of today online. If you can articulate that your product is authentic, people will wait for it and they'll pay for it. For the Google Market Finder and Google Trends, if you don't know the name of your product or a category you want to search in another language, just go to Google Translate, type in the product name, then cut and paste that into it. And Google Market Finder will do it based on a different language, and you can find out how many people are searching for vegan cosmetics in Chinese. You know? And so there are lots of things to do, and it's out there for you. Another simple solution, go to Amazon.fr, Amazon.uk, go to the marketplaces overseas, eBay, etc., and type in the product. Who's selling what and who's doing it well uh, in a given market? It's there. It's, it's never been easier to understand what products are selling and what amounts in which markets than it is today from the comfort of your own office. So just think about it and, and take a look online and think logically. Great. Thank you very much for this information, Josh. This information is pure gold. It is so practical, and I know our listeners are very excited, taking notes, and definitely planning on visiting the e-commerce Innovation Labs website. So let's start wrapping up. Josh, thank you very much for your time. We know that you are super busy. So just three more questions. Uh, the first one is, what are some of the main challenges or the top two or three challenges that you see people dealing with when selling products worldwide via e-commerce? You mentioned a little bit about language. Uh, are there any other challenges that uh, you see small businesses facing often when doing international sales via e-commerce? 
Sure. I mean, obviously, one of the things we've done is look at the challenges and created the nine topics on our site based on the challenges we see. Uh, I would say the common challenge is shipping, logistics, and full-landed costs. I mean, a lot of companies don't know what that's like. They think there's a ton of paperwork. There's a lot of uh, understanding they need in terms of HS codes and how much is the product going to actually cost for my end user. Do I ship via DDP or DDU? So delivery duties paid, delivery duties unpaid, uh, and what that means. I found companies, and again, I, you know, if you go to our service providers list, uh, you know, you can find out more. But I have there are companies now that integrate that all of those issues and take it off the table for the small company, um, and they can put it on your site, and the consumer will understand exactly what's being paid, what's being uh, charged and for what, and the HS codes and all that regulation. So. While it's a challenge, it's something that's easily overcome if, you're, if you know the right partners and companies that are doing this today. So one thing that's wonderful about the U.S. is that when there's a challenge, there's a lot of companies that flood in to, uh, to address those challenges because that's looked at as an opportunity. And we certainly have an onslaught of companies that are doing this today. And, uh, and you're happy if you take a look. eBay... For example, now does cross-border fulfillment. They partnered with a company called Pindy Bowes that just bought Border Free. Uh, they're doing some really good work to help companies fulfill direct to overseas buyers. Amazon, of course, has fulfillment by Amazon, and they're starting to roll that out in new markets overseas to help facilitate that. FedEx has a lot of great solutions: UPS, DHL, uh, USPS. You know, and all of these are a lot of these are strategic partners of ours. Josh, you have a lot of experience traveling and living abroad. I would like to ask you about international traveling. Do you have any recommendations for exporters that are planning on doing international traveling or are currently doing international traveling? Do you have any travel tips that you can share, especially when traveling abroad? You know, there's one thing that I think comes up again and again, and it's probably rudimentary, but listen is the biggest advice I have. I've seen hundreds, if not more, Companies come to our doorstep in the embassy uh, in China and elsewhere, and and even when you're traveling, frankly, uh, for recreational purposes, it's not about showing what you've got. It's about listening to the market. It's about listening to people. Great example, you know, Airbnb came to us in China, and they really stood out as an organization that was willing and interested in listening first, and not dictating their business model, which is somewhat challenging, as you know, from Airbnb. And they weren't interested in dictating it to the local community and the government. They were looking to listen to where their needs are in the market and how they can help, who are the people that can benefit from their product, from their service. So that's sales 101, right? When I was a, a, a magazine advertising sales guy in Spain, but I was living there for many years, uh, the biggest challenge I had was, you know, how do you sell to, you know, frankly, stuff to people they really need? And the first thing is to listen to who they are, what they want, and where they're at. And so I think that's, that's one of the key elements. Another thing I think that you see is different markets you know, are different. And you know, if you're going to India, it's kind of a communal experience. You talk and everyone talks and everyone talks quite a lot. Um, and it's hard to decipher what the outcome is and it's hard to decipher what the next steps are. So reiterating, here's the next steps. We just had this meeting. Here's what's going to happen. Here's when it's going to happen. Here's who's going to do it. And here's what I expect. And even with that, Two weeks later, you come back with a report that has nothing to do with what you thought it was. And so there's lots of challenges there and being patient. In China, it's 
somewhat of the opposite. There's one person who usually speaks if you're in a high-level meeting, and that person will say what's happening and what they think, or they may not, but the ones who ultimately are thinking about it, and that will decide the outcome. Uh, so you've got to understand that person. You have to respect that person. One of the things in China that I see a lot of U.S. companies and also in friends do is they go into a room, it's a group table, and they just sit down anywhere, and they start talking. And it's kind of, they talk to anybody, and they want to engage with people who are not necessarily the leaders, but they want to show that they're egalitarian, that everybody's involved, it's a democratic experience. Well, that's not necessarily the way it works. You, you know, I've gotten used to now, and when I come back to America, it's such an odd experience because people are so casual. If I'm going to the room, I'm going to sit probably, if I'm the, the head rep from the government, I'm going to sit in the middle center of my side of the table, and the leader of the China side is going to sit in the middle across from me. And they're going to talk with me, and I'm going to talk with them. They're not going to expect me to, nor do they want me to talk directly to somebody else that's a subordinate uh, about some of the major issues, unless they designated as that as that opportunity. Now that's changing, and of course, culture is getting more globalized. But it's not a democratic experience in certain markets where everyone has a voice. You know, one of the things that I found with managing staff too, if this is useful in other markets, is I would first ask questions about what the staff's opinions are about certain things and who thinks we should do things this way versus that way. And I found in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways getting feedback about, well, if you're asking us these questions, it's because you don't really know what you're doing, and therefore I don't really respect what you're doing. So there has to be a really fine balance in certain markets, uh, and that's not just China, but certain markets where you clearly identify that you know what you're doing, you have a clear vision, and when you're asking opinions, it's because you want additional feedback and giving people a voice, not because you don't know what you're doing. That was a very good set of recommendations. And let's finish the interview on a lighter note. And I want, I want to ask you, if you have a situation that made you think, boy, we are not in Kansas anymore. You know, a funny situation or something that happened when you were traveling for business or living abroad that made you realize that doing business in other countries or the way of life in other countries is plain different than in the United States. Sure. I would say that happens on a daily basis uh, in so many places. So I travel around the world, obviously. I bring my Brompton foldable bike with me. It's a British-made foldable bike. If you haven't seen it, it kind of breaks down into kind of a, a little square. And whenever I'm overseas, especially, for example, in India, which happens to be a former British colony, so you'd think they'd be more familiar with it, I get an audience of about 20 people in the corner of the street, which is usually pretty crowded, just watching me fold and unfold this bike to the point where I'll end up saying, hey, who wants to see it again? And I fold it and unfold it. And you get a huge crowd. And it's fun because I'm a, you know, I'm a, a ham anyway, so I love to get attention wherever I can get it. But it's also an interesting idea just going over there and saying, wow, this type of product I would never have known would be so immediately viral, if you will. But... Being there, I can kind of gauge that, and I get these experiences. And then, you know, if I go back and say, "Well, this product would really resonate," let's find the right distributor that does, that can sell it. Um, so, I think traveling in itself gives you so many things that you would never expect in terms of informing your your strategy and what products would, would work. Josh, what a great way to end the interview. Thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it tremendously. We know that you are extremely busy with the launch of the e-commerce innovation lab. So again, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for the advice that you gave us today. And uh, Josh, do you have any parting words? 
So Alberto, it's great to be here. Uh, you know, thanks so much for having me on. And uh, you know, I'm always interested in understanding more from the clients that you deal with. And I think the exciting thing is that we've never before had the opportunity as small and medium enterprises to sell overseas and to crack open this market globally. So I'm hoping that if we can do what we're doing to help companies sell more, we're going to create a better global economy, more understanding of across the world, and hopefully better relations. Josh, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for today. See you in a couple of weeks. And remember, the planet is your market. Export like a boss. You've been listening to Export Like a Boss, the podcast for those on the front lines of international business and trade. For past episodes and more information, visit us at exportlikeaboss.com or subscribe on iTunes. 